0: Welcome to Rationalist ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host Morgan Wack and I'm here with a delighted Eddie Matthews and as a special guest today who we've been promising and teasing for months we have the one and only Tyler Green. Welcome Tyler.
1: What up what up good to be here.
0: All right so we got we got quite a crew today. I, uh, anybody want us to give a rundown of what, we're, what we're talking about?
2: Well first of all can you give a rundown of how you know Tyler and how far you guys go back and
0: uh, i've never you know. met this guy in my life so i don't know how he got on here
1: <laughs> i've just been saying like i'm a huge fan i have to make it onto the pod get me a spot damn it
0: <laughs> i was like should i let him on or restraining order it was one of the two we're gonna see how it goes <laughs> no me and tyler have been friends since freshman year of, of college so he was a, a friend of hunter who was on here previous episode our previous guest of the pod um and we just hit it off and yeah, we've been friends ever since. We we're both sociology majors, a couple of the only uh, male sociology majors at CC in our class.
2: Excellent. And Colorado uh, College, for, for those who don't know, it's like essentially like an Ivy League of the, of the Midwest. Oh, well, really, a, stop it. Ivy stop. League <laughs> picked after us. True.
0: And... <laughs> yeah. We're just the league. And then they yeah. had to specify types of plants afterwards. They had you no know, once They went down the list. Um, most importantly the reason I know Tyler is cuz uh, we were actually co-ed basketball champions in this is 2013 true. so there's that yes pretty much uh, bring it back
2: <laughs> so that leads that leads both of your cvs that's at <laughs> yeah. the top
1: that's 100%
0: what's
1: at the top of my cv so yeah yeah i was you know i was i was looking at our picture the other day and i was like you know what this team could really take on anyone so you know that's a challenge for for folks out there you know in the intramural landscape our co-ed basketball team we're ready so once covid is done obviously like, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah,
2: it was, didn't you guys go to school with like dick cheney's granddaughter too or something yes <laughs> until we destroyed her in
0: basketball huh? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, <again. laughs> yes that's true now what are we talking about today guys
1: oh the joys uh one of my very favorite topics to continue to talk about um because there's a lot that goes into it gentrification what a word what a you know there's a lot of loaded things that go into it um and morgan reached out to me and was like you know what i think this would be a good thing for us to talk about and i'm from portland um so for the folks out there that are listening probably know a good amount about Portland and how uh, gentrified the city has become over the years. So we figured, why not? Let's, let's dive into this, you know, ridiculous concept and topic.
2: So you grew up in Portland and are currently living there now, Tyler?
1: I am. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So nice. yeah, grew up here with FAM. We've moved once, um, but the, the whole time that I've been in Portland, we've been in Northeast Portland. Um, for folks that are like that know about Portland, Northeast encompasses a good amount of the of the city. However, we've been able to be in a couple of different neighborhoods, um, and yeah. So I'm I'm back here after um, going to going to undergrad, living in Boston for a year, and then going to grad school. But I've been back home for all that, um, from all that, excuse me, for two and a half years at this point. So.
0: So I thought this might be a good topic for you because we're Eddie and I are from a place where there isn't really gentrification. It's too small, really. I think to sure, even yeah. qualify. Um, but I will talk about one instance of minor gentrification later on in the podcast from around here. But otherwise, we we thought you definitely could weigh in as somebody from an actual city and not from the middle of nowhere like us uh, you could give us some inside information and also because as a sociology major and somebody who works with kids in in the inner city and things like that you have a unique perspective to give us so we're we're happy to have you here
1: yeah you know I uh, (laughs) love talking about gentrification uh, just because, because there's a lot that goes into it right of like you know there's a lot to weigh and you know what we'll talk about right there are things that have been able to benefit communities and then obviously there are tons of things that are you know just make things garbage (laughs) and but you know it's yeah it's it's a weighted thing and and it's continuously ongoing especially here in in Portland Um, but yeah so happy to dive in.
2: Maybe, Maybe a good way into this topic Tyler would be could you explain you were talking about being able to see you know the slowly over the course of your lifetime in Portland like the city slowly becoming gentrified can you talk about uh, your experience of that process. And then also maybe touch on, you know, if you've come across this in your job experience or academically or kind of the research of it, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so for me, um, when I kind of first really noticed gentrification taking off was throughout high school and then especially into um, coming back from school in undergrad. So what I would notice it's but you know, from high school and then coming back and whatnot was, you know, a good amount of high-rise condos, pop it up, apartments, um, you know, just more amenities as far as different bars, you know, restaurants, um, you know, the avocado toast that, you know, coffee shops, all these different things, right, of like, okay, this is, you know, this kind of fits the mold of Portland, like, Portland's a really weird city, right, like, um, even for folks that haven't been here, you've probably, you know, seen Portlandia or whatever, and, like, there's a good amount of things that are true about that show, there's some that are not, but overall, like, that vibe is, is true, so, it was kind of weird because a lot of the things that have popped up um, due to gentr- due to gentrification in Portland fit the mold of the city. But at the same time, what what has to be acknowledged first and foremost is Oregon and then Portland. From that is like rooted in white supremacy, like ab- like deeply, deeply rooted, and and that kind of has continued to carry out, especially through gentrification of you know smaller populations of you know Black Indigenous people of color. Those communities just being decimated by you know these high-rise condos, these you know different amenities that are coming up, bike lanes um, everywhere. Portland's a super bikeable city, but that has also come through you know people being displaced. And it's like, cool, that's that's great. You have a bike lane. I don't have a home, so congratulations. Um, so for me, what what's what's really struck stuck out is um, just the the continued evolution of different things. Especially there are a couple of streets where. Um, things have gotten to a place where it's like the almost the original things that gentrified a block or neighborhood or anything, those are now gone, and they've been replaced by something else. And it's like, oh my God, now there's just like there's no character. There's you know these monstrosities of condos popping up that like are completely out of touch with anything that had been established in the neighborhood. And that that's where that's where things are just like you know th- this sucks. <laughs> like, you know, but there, there's got to be something done in some capacity to slow this down, make it stop, whatever, like, you know. So yeah, for, for me, it's just, it's been really bizarre kind of seeing all those different things. Um, but, but then one, one thing that like, you know, we'll get into, right, the um, things, the decent things that can come from gentrification. Um, so related to, to working with kids. So I, I work at a local nonprofit. Um, it's called Friends of the Children. And so it's a mentoring organization uh, with kids. So um, some of the kids that I work with, they live really close to the, the first house that I lived in. And in that area, there used to be, like, th- just these d- giant, like, warehouses and whatnot. Where that spot is is now a huge park. And it's, like, it's a great spot to, you know, there, there's a little skate rink. There's, you know, there's swings, all the, you know, all the tricks and trades. So that's been something that's actually been kind of cool to, um, you know, tell the story to the kids that I work with of, like, this used to literally be nothing, like, you know, um, it, you know, there are garbage cans, whatever, but now it's something that you can enjoy, right, um, so there, there are some ways, right, of like, okay, this can actually work out, for the most part, though, it's like, well, there's no character, <laughs> and, you know, all these other aspects, um, but yeah, so it's, it's been a trip, for sure, and just seeing all the, all the different things that have popped up, and um, yeah, so.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting insight. I, I want to focus on one thing really quickly just because I, I don't know how well Eddie knows Oregon, but I don't know it super well just from driving through. I've visited you once. Um, Portland always seems nice when I drive through, but I haven't spent much time there. Uh, but yeah, I think to me, at least for, from a California perspective or somebody who hasn't lived in the Pacific Northwest long, it kind of just gets subsumed into like the Pacific Northwest.
2: Yeah. And I
0: kind of associate it more with Washingtonians and Seattle and uh, maybe more socially liberal individuals. And I think the same thing about Portland, but it is definitely the kind of, uh, let's we'll just say racist aspects of Oregon and the history there and the kind of prominence of these factions in the state. I find really interesting and I don't really know much about that at all. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on like why is Oregon such a hot point or hotspot for anti-minority feelings or sentiments on the West Coast?
1: Sure thing, Yeah. And so when I say Oregon, that especially moving back to, let's, you know, go into the 1800s, 1900s, like that, that really did mean Washington included, Idaho, parts of Montana. So just that, you know, the Oregon territory, right? Um, Or the Northwest territory. So once, once it gets to Oregon, though, like, I mean, up until I believe it was the early 2000s, there was language in like deeds, and then um, just legislation and whatnot within the state that still contained just Ex, like overtly racist language about you know whether that was in regards to selling homes to to black people and making sure that didn't happen um sundown towns you all may you know be be familiar with that term of like that was extremely prominent in oregon um in southern oregon more so and portland's obviously much farther north but the you know the sentiment was definitely there and just the the as- the fact that like if if you were black and you lived in portland for a long time it was like you were extremely frowned upon and like, you were essentially an illegal citizen and, you know, considered you know, obviously, you know, there's a whole three-fifths compromise, like that persisted um, for a long time in Oregon and then in Portland, it was, you know, just founded on as a white utopia. Um, so the, those sentiments, since that isn't really, that isn't, that information and education isn't really provided all that much. Like, personally, I didn't learn about how that was, you know, a, a piece of our history until i was in college and i learned that on my own <laughs> um so if, if that's not ingrained in your in the school systems or anything like that then those those sentiments are going to persist right maybe it's not going to be overt but there are going to be ways of you know just like fear factors you know all all of these different things that just amount to you know people being labeled and then being thought of in a in a worse way
0: i feel like i missed that or- part of oregon trail Next time I play, I'm not gonna feel as bad when I die of dysentery on the way out west. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah when, when you're that, that's a plug right there. That game. It's and there's a board game for it now. Like... Oh really?
0: I'm surprised they haven't remade the movie. You know, the movie Jumanji, where it's like they fall into a I would love to play the like, see the Oregon trail version of Jumanji. What are you gonna say, Eddie?
2: Oh uh, yeah. Well, just all of us growing up with this terrible fear of dysentery, you know. We just <laughs> died so many times over virtually from it. Um, no, I guess Tyler, to kind of speak to what you're saying, it's, I, you know, let's say some of our listeners are really, uh, put off by the idea of white supremacy as like, or they just think it's a social construct or they think it's this kind of like progressive idea. I think it's m- more pointing out ways that there are structural and material ways that, Minority communities have been impacted by city planning in the way that it hasn't affected like rich, affluent, typically like white communities. So it's the idea of like the places where they built freeways displaced, you know, look like at minority neighborhoods, and they, those were never built in a way that would harm or impact the life of rich, affluent white people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's that's, those kind of things that we're talking about when we're talking about white supremacy, right? in terms of portland and gentrification i amid all of, of course all of the like racist like I, I have a friend uh who bought a house in point loma which is you know really rich affluent part of san diego and they looked at their deed uh over the summer you know as the george floyd protests were going on i don't know if they just happened to look at their deed or like what they were doing but um Written into the deed that was written in like the '50s or whatever for their home is like you will not sell this to an Oriental or like black you know like person. Whoa. Yeah, yeah.
1: So. yeah, absolutely, yeah, and right, like I mean that that redlining happened everywhere, and, and even yeah, the, the point that you were making about freeways, like in Portland, there there's a neighborhood called Albina, and so that was a predominantly black neighborhood up through let's see about the '60s or seven into the '70s roughly, um, but. I-5 was built like in between a good chunk of that neighborhood. And so that displaced people just nonstop along with right. Yeah, like, oh, we couldn't, you know, black communities or people couldn't even buy homes in certain areas. So it's like that that was the hub, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of culture, a ton of like just great community that was was coming from there. Um, Obviously in the sixties, right? You've got the civil rights movement. So there's just a lot that's being built up in that time. The freeway comes in, splits everything apart and then um, in the 70s, I believe, there was an expansion of a hospital that's right there, which is actually really close to one of uh, the buildings uh, that, that I work at. And so the expansion there, that caused even more displacement. And so it's like, yeah, it's a hospital, right? It's, it's providing services, all of that, <clears throat> but it's ensuring that there's less community intact, in right? Um, I mean, in people capital and per, yeah, person capital, and then you know just like cultural capital, all of that. And so, the, yeah, those things, they pop up all the time and you know it's it's not the like it's not the fault of any one person or developer or anything like that it's just that sentiment right of you know who gets to kind of decide where these different things are going to go who gets to then decide okay well you know this community has no financial uh, meaning or anything like that so we're just going to do this and it's like well why don't you you know (laughs) and this is something that we can continue to talk about but like there's never a conversation with communities right there's never a care about communities until, um, you know, there's something to be be dropped in, essentially, whether it is an amenity or an expansion, you know, a housing unit, whatever it might be. But for folks that are, like, in a community for generations upon generations, there's never any consideration of, okay, well, maybe we could, like, reach out and, you know, talk to people about, do you want a bike lane (laughs) going through your community? Like, we can talk about how that's a good thing. And instead, it's just, okay, we're going to superimpose this, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, just rooted in, you know, not, not caring about, you know, how people <laughs> are going to, you know, live day to day or, um, you know, that they, can, that they can move, right, at any point because it's like, oh, you can, you know, you, you're used to, like, being a transient population, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, <laughs> what, it, you know, it would be more beneficial is if a family can stay with that, right? So, there, yeah, there's just all these different. Factors that again, it's, you know, it's not the fault of any one person or anything. It's, it's these systems, right, that are always at fault. Um,
0: yeah, so- I think you guys bring up some great points. I think when we focus on these more noxious examples where it's like, oh, it actually says you can't have people of a minority buying these houses, these sorts of things. I often think that these are kind of the most damaging, not in the direct impact, but in the fact that they cover up from all the policies that just have persisted that didn't necessarily exactly mention that. Oscar Wilde once said that the, the worst types of slave owners were those ones who treated their slaves well. And I think about that a lot because it's, it's those people that kind of rationalize or make it okay for these systems to persist. I think when we think of something like these sorts of policies, a lot of this gentrification, we'll talk about the actual kind of policies that are driving this exclusionary zoning laws and a lot of these municipal policies that Tyler's talked about. One of the main things that I ran into when I was reading through this was kind of the impact of path dependence and opting in. A lot of the psychology literature and the behavioral economics literature kind of shows that one of the most powerful to have something persist is just by having it be the default option. That's why Facebook is throwing such a fit to Apple right now because they're trying to switch it so they don't, uh, consumers don't automatically get their data, but they would have to opt in. I think when you pass all these laws, you know, in the 50s and 60s or even before then, even though they might not directly be impacting certain communities over others, it's really, really difficult to remove laws or to alter laws. Laws, once they're in place, are in place. It's incredibly difficult to get enough political support behind a specific law to change it. I was reading of this research recently about the downsides of participatory democracy in or in urban communities. And basically what the research showed is that when they actually looked at who was speaking and who was able to come to these meetings, the average person was like 75 year old retired white guy. It's like, of course, they're holding these things on like Tuesdays at three in the afternoon, who can go to that except for like the retired guy who cares a lot about his local property. So it's the idea of trying to do good, but having everything so stacked against you from the get go you're already so far behind in a lot of these places. And we can talk about this, but I just think it's really interesting not to take it as kind of level, these communities are equal and people are coming in, but they're already starting so far behind in terms of the amenities provided. And we can talk about some of the potential positives, but I think that's something to say before we dig into the nuts and bolts of gentrification.
2: Yeah, it's like when Chris Rock in his SNL monologue a couple of weeks before the election was like, they don't want you to vote. And the proof of that is that they made election day a tuesday in november you know like it's a really good point like all of these decisions it's not to say that like every governmental action or decision is racially tinged or racially motivated or racist it's to say that everything is a conscious decision you know and so the more that we can pay attention to how the like heritage of these accumulated decisions like stack up and influence different systems and different ways of life and different groups of people that is like worthy of our attention and worthy of our like critical thinking you know
0: absolutely but i will say this from reading through all this stuff i have i would like to hear your thoughts tyler i feel like the corporations have really sold out the hipster (laughs) the hipster is getting all the blame for gentrification when in reality. They are a symptom rather than the actual issue, in my opinion, but I don't know what you have to think about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's chess, right? Like, you know, so hipsters are, are the pawns and, you know, so that, you know, bigger pieces, right? Don't have to be
2: as affected. The um, avocado
0: toast companies.
2: Oh yeah. How does it, it feel to be a pawn, Morgan?
0: <laughs> hey, I'm not a hipster, okay? These glasses aren't prescription. <laughs>
2: <laughs> everyone deserves it right so
1: no i i completely agree it's you know because i mean that that's another symptom right of of white supremacy and all, all these different components of like if we can shift the you know if we can shift the fight the you know hatred anger all these different components to the other or some other type of other and that's a good use of the word other um you know then, then it's like we're not as at fault right um But yeah, it's it's just, it's wild that, you know, because there are a lot of convoluted things that go into gentrification, but at, you know, at the genesis, right, it's just like, if you can just settle on, okay, it's the displacement of people because of other things making them be displaced. You know, that's a, I don't know, probably like a third grade (laughs) type description and, you know, could have gone more into it. But if you take it at its genesis right there, then it's like, okay, that's probably not a good thing, (laughs) right? but there there since there are so many pieces that go into it and so much that leads up to it that comes after uh, that's where all of the different pieces of it of it come right because there there's never really like an agreed upon way of you know trying to combat gentrification or trying to even even go through like okay there are decent there are good things that come from this like that usually is is like no we can't agree upon that right like you know gentrification is like you know this monster that we have to like everything that goes into it, we have to say, we can't, no, we, we can't settle with that, blah, blah, blah. But there, right, there, there are things that like, you know, and, and some, of the, some of the stuff that, that we read, like, it's like, okay, well, like maybe, maybe this could be integrated into, into communities as opposed to just like, you know, every single piece has to be fought. Personally, you know, and, and you know, I'll, I'll explain my, my points, but I'm like, you know, the, yeah, personally, I think there are <laughs> far, far too many things that have already happened that now the process of gentrification makes it so that it's like, you know, it's a no-go for me. However, there are components if, if there are ways that like, you know, reparations can be, can be handled or anything like that, where it's like, okay, then, you know, if, if we do move forward in a more thoughtful manner, this can benefit everyone and not just a certain class, which most often, right, is, you know, white, relatively or fully affluent folks and and then from there it's like all right cool no one else gets gets to read the benefits.
0: <laughs> yeah, these are great points. All right, let's let's lay out the the positive side because we've talked about it. Let's people who are proponents of gentrification and and mean to do well. I'm sure there's a group of people that like gentrification because they're just malevolent and they just hate the world. I don't know. But these are people that genuinely want to help people and they see gentrification or at least the processes that go into gentrification as providing some benefits to the local communities. And so the, the main ones of these are, I think, the social side, I think anti-segregation, right? The, they say, oh, if we have these segregated communities, if the problem is that minority communities are off on their own and they're disconnected from a lot of these public services, from the best schools, um, these sorts of things, would isn't it beneficial to desegregate in this sort of way? If we bring, you know, mostly white people into these communities, maybe the government will be more willing to provide better services or they'll upscale the schools. If income taxes go up, then the schools will be better funded. So that's one of the main arguments. And the other one is just an economic argument, which is if you bring in you know, better capital, if you build a department building and local businesses, you bring in a Walmart, things are going to be cheaper. Prices are going to go up. People are going to want houses more and housing prices go up. Um, we could talk about that one. I think that in this debate, from what we read, so we read an Economist article, a rebuttal, and a New York Times, a couple of New York Times set pieces for this. Um, I think the housing one is, to me the most interesting because I think there's the most leeway for kind of political innovation, which we talk about a lot on this podcast. Um, but I also think it's, it's the one that's researched the least, and the Im- impact, I think, is the most direct on communities. They, they amazingly in this economist article, they rip on anecdotal evidence, which I actually hate. It's my biggest pet peeve in the world. I hate it so much. They, every article you ever read these days, it's like, you know, Juan, the nurse from so-and-so like had three twins and you're like, okay, I, that's great. And this article, it's amazing because at the very beginning they're like, anecdotal evidence is the worst. And then I, I wrote this down they say, <laughs> that, what is the, they say one black resident, Logan Circle, a residential district in downtown Washington bought his home in 1993 for 130,000. He recently sold it for 1.6 million, like two sentences after they ripped on annual evidence. So amazing, but I we do think, yeah, this
1: could be you. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. So I, I think I don't know. What, do you have any? Does anybody want to say anything specifically about those potential positives? Are we in agreement that there could be good things about you know this desegregation, this economic investment, um, if done correctly or done in a sustainable way?
2: Well, and and it also seemed just a kind of one addendum to like the positives of gentrification. It also seems like crime does tend tend to go down as the process of gentrification, like you know, evolves. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. This gets complicated because it's like sometimes police show up in minority communities, and it's nonsense, right? And that's like not good, and it's draconian, and it's not good. Um, But I think like the whole kind of defund the police. to my understanding like the the defund the police um like movement was actually trying to make a nuanced point about why don't we uh in these communities where the police budget is so astronomically high defund the police to an extent of like reallocating the funds towards community programs towards organizations like the one tyler works at so that you can make inner city uh places more like not to not to not to make them you know as cultureless as some suburbs are but it's the idea of like the the police presence isn't is more of like a partnership and not like this you know
1: yeah for sure and and i think that that was something that i, I took away pretty strongly from, from this article especially and so like you know i i am someone that fully believes in defunding the police hell i believe in abolishing the police because like th- there's been so much damage that already has been done and what the police, especially in the U.S., is founded upon is is wild. And Oregon and, and Portland especially is like where a lot of that um, ideology of, of policing that is now happening of, you know, just let's, let you know, let's capture, let, you know, let's arrest as many people as we can. Let's beat them to a pulp, all those different things. A lot of that was founded upon here in Portland. And so the fact that that ideology has spread across the country is like, man, that sucks. And there were, I mean, there were open, uh, clans you know grand wizards and all that in the police force in the you know 1920s 30s all all that time and that has persisted to bring it back to this this space like there there is you know where there's more police there's going to be more crime reported right (laughs) so like that's that's the you know that that's the piece and so we have seen that there are more police in communities of color you know black communities all that and so while and you know crime has been on a downward trend for decades at this point but we you know we stigmatize it so much and it's reported on so heavily in the media right of like oh my gosh there's another shooting blah 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 and it's like yeah that's terrible i completely agree over the vast span right there is not as much crime reported and like things can be escalated right because police can you know they can write their own reports and all these different components so if so if those funds are allocated in a different capacity right then that honestly could in some, in some concept be part of gentrification in like kind of a a weird way, but again, right. Yeah. That's, that's where like different amenities can show up. There can be parks that are in communities. There, there would be a better way to potentially integrate communities, um, in, in a more holistic manner, as opposed to, you know, this article kind of touched on it being like, okay, yeah, if if there's, you know, there's black and white people in in community together, then everything's going to be great. And uh, right. There's, far more to that right? there's far more to that of like okay you have to understand communal practices like um hell maybe reparations should be given to you know BIPOC uh, communities because like that would probably be beneficial too or just like the piece of just again understanding the history of of um of these different areas and like if if that along with the finances that are provided can be driven forward then yeah then that could be a more well integrated society that doesn't usually happen it's usually just all right we're dropped in and then everything's going to be great it's like no no no, no." (laughs) there's a lot more to it than that but um, yeah there are pieces right of like if if the money goes in in a in a better way if there is more community voice then those things can happen that just isn't usually the process
0: so yeah you're speaking much more to like the lived experience which i don't have so i welcome you to, to interrupt me here um one of them, I think, just jumping back to housing, we can get back and we, we should have a, a discussion on Black Lives Matter at the end because we wanted to have you on for that while it was going on. And now we can maybe bring some, some re-attention to it now that things are less in the in the media. So there was like an insurrection at the Capitol. I don't know if you heard something going on, other things, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I, I wanted to say, I kind of see it as uh, a cascade effect in gentrification. Like you said, the, it's not as if this is gradual change where things are slowly integrating over time. If you think about it from an economic perspective, you know, they see certain neighborhoods as not being good investments. Somebody takes a chance, invests and puts in a high rise. Suddenly the three buildings around that are worth twice as much that jumps in. And then as soon as a third of that local area is worth a lot, the rest of it, you know, it basically just transforms in very little amount of time because now it's we're seen as worthy of investment or whatever and so it it really is it doesn't give the local community or the municipality really a lot of time to adjust or to address these issues with local community in mind so i do think that's part of it it's not this gradual change it's kind of this waterfall cascade effect
2: especially because in san diego at least to my understanding a lot of these developments like i live in bankers hill and it's oh bankers hill (laughs) I know, I'm rich, I'm rich. No, it's like this community is, uh, you know, typically the the, historically like the affluent kind of like part of San Diego. I mean, I'm living in a tiny apartment in here and I like am paying crazy rent. I know I'm getting ripped off, but it's, you know, a nice area. So, but to my understanding, like in this area, uh, the developers that are coming in are like, foreign like arab emirates saudi arabian companies and building these like massive condos charging you know high rent and people are paying it and they're making profit so it's not necessarily like people who grew up in san diego who came into money who are investors and want to like even have any kind of context for this community you know and so that's like reshaping and make into tyler's like earlier points like making san diego a lot more boring like the the neighborhood i live in versus barrio logan like 15 minutes down the freeway is way it's a way more interesting kind of place and there's way more skate parks and there's way more just stuff going on here it's just apartment complex after apartment complex after apartment complex um so sorry just to your point we're like the the people the developers coming in here not having any sort of context for what this community is a lot of times
0: yeah so i think this gets at so this is the main rebuttal right and tyler you can you can add on to this or you can say maybe this isn't the main point but from what i understand if you're looking at it from an economic lens then you you just miss a lot of the negatives right a lot of what comes out of gentrification that's not great for the community not great for you know the locals not great in the long run for the city is not economic it's the loss of culture, the loss of an identity, the loss of, you know, walkability, whatever it is, it's a lot of these things that aren't necessarily picked up in your local house value. And so I want to get to the, the housing in particular, a lot of the studies that have been used to show that gentrification is positive for the community, use housing as the main asset of interest, which to me makes literally no sense because a lot of these studies are from the nineties and the two thousands, and they essentially show that housing prices go up and that rent goes up. And to me, To me, maybe if the average renters and the average cost of renting compared to um, earnings had stayed the same over time, then this would be much more manageable. But both those things are drastically um, changing in the last 30, 40 years. The amount of money that um, an average individual and especially people who work for minimum wage use on their rent has gone up and up and up just like college tuition. The same thing goes for the, the amount of house ownership. The amount of people who have jobs that own their home has gone way down. And so both these things have made it far less plausible to say that the locals are the ones who are really gaining the benefits from this type of investment. Sure, I'm sure, what is this guy's name? Logan Circle? That might be an area. Or whoever this guy's name is who made $1.6 million, that's great. But how many people in these areas actually own their homes? It's less than 10% in some of these areas, so it's it's really not any of these benefits are accruing to these individuals, even if they don't have to move. These higher rents add up, especially when you're already making a very little amount. Um, and I think that to me, that's the best argument economically. And there are also lots of social arguments. Maybe you can dig into that a little more.
1: Sure, and I mean, even even on that financial piece, like I mean, that that's why I feel like that's why Portland is such a, a hotbed within gentrification is because in the 90s, right, you could you could live here, you could own a home, and you could just be, you know, working at a restaurant, you could be a bartender, you could, you know, be working in, in that, in a service, and have a service industry job, and you would be fine, and I mean, th- this article even said, right, like, that that guy bought his house in 93, year I was born, let's go, um, and like, you know, obviously, over time, like, we know inflation is a thing, so all, the, all these pieces, like, they, not that high, <laughs> yeah, which is wild, I was like, I mean, congrats to you, man, that's great, again, right, an anecdote, but, like, you know, so that, that's why I I feel like Portland is so interesting in this, though, is because, like, my parents, they were able to, you know, buy a house in, in the mid-90s, and, I mean, like, you know, my, my mom worked at a, um, at a baby clothing company, my dad worked as a chef, like, they, you know, didn't have jobs that were super affluent or anything, Um, but they were able to, you know, at least afford a spot that was, like, all right, you know, we're, we're okay we're home you know they're homeowners excuse me not me um, and um, but now right like I I still live with my parents and you know for, that'll possibly be the foreseeable future just because like I you know in the work that I have like or the work that I'm in it's not feasible to own a home sure you can rent right like that's fine but yeah right like the rent prices have raised astronomically in in Portland and in, you know in, in any city and so yeah, if, if you're rent burdened, then yeah, you're not going to be able to accumulate capital. Um, you're not, you know, you're never going to be able to move forward. If anything, you're just going to continue to move backwards. Right. So yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, I, I see how um, it, you know, because ultimately what this is saying, right, is if you got in within ownership at the right time, then you can bank out, but it's like, cool if i was zero years old in, in the 90s right or you know for for you know for folks that were adults at the time then it's like okay if if you if you missed the spot or anything like that then you're shit out of luck too and that it, it, it's, it
0: sucks, right? <laughs> and it also treats community as a market, right? It's saying, oh, if you, you know, maybe, sure, he sold his home for 1.6 million, that's great, but where is he going to go, right? It's not like everyone makes a million dollars and they can just buy another house. If everything, like, let's say this was in San Francisco, he probably can't even afford a home in the same community, even with that 1.6 million. So it's not as if there's the perfect trade-off. One of the biggest puzzles in the economics literature at large, at least international development, was essentially why more people don't migrate. And there's still lots of papers written about this because they'll say, okay, rural communities, they are, you're making way less, the standard of living is less. Why aren't these people just, why isn't everyone moving to cities? In the aftermath of the Greek financial meltdown and um, the Eurozone crisis, it was a huge um, anticipation that basically there would be flocks of Greeks moving to the other parts of the EU and essentially it didn't happen. There was very few, I think it was like 300,000 Greeks that left in that period of time. And most have gone back since. Um, and this puzzled lots of economists for a long time And it took sociologists and a lot of other um, disciplines to come in and say, this is where their families are. Like, we shouldn't need an economic analysis for this. This is where they live. This is the languages that they speak. This is where they've grown up. These are the people that they know. It's not as if you can just trade in a $10 home for a $20 home and say, well, my family's worth $10. See you later. You know, I'm going to Romania. That's not how things work. And that's not how people work. So it it really doesn't make a ton of sense. I understand a lot of the, the desire to have more integration, I think is very strong. And I think that is you know, definitely a positive if done in the right way. So maybe we can shift over towards kind of policies to combine the best of, of both worlds. Maybe not completely restricting these sorts of trends, but definitely having them exist in a way in which the local community has the final say, or at least the local community is able to veto the pace with which certain gentrification
2: happens in certain cities. I think w- one of the um, articles that we read, and Tyler, I'd like to get your um, opinion on this because you're much, much closer to, uh, you know, like these communities and, and community planning and like all of the thinking that has to go through all of the multifaceted kind of problems that come up with, with this. The idea of a community benefits agreement where... Um, I'll just read kind of a short segment of this article it's just the idea of um they cite santa monica as an example which isn't a terrible example in my opinion because santa monica is like a crazy wealthy like disproportionately wealthy community that's not representative of like communities in america so it says community benefits were required as part of the development agreement the largest community benefit is the dedication of land for a residential complex with affordable housing units um Another community benefit was contribution of $5 million for transportation, parks and rec, affordable housing, historic preservation, early childhood programs. And then they list some other um, community benefits like uh, recycled water infrastructure program, community meeting space, et cetera. Um, so Tyler, I'm curious in your, in your work or in your research, if you've come across community benefit agreements and, it, and if those are kind of a, a way forward to ameliorate some of the problems Morgan just described.
1: Thing, yeah. So um, up, up until reading this specific article, I, I hadn't seen this terminology, but I've seen the practice of it. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think about. So I, I went to grad school for uh, the program was called community and regional planning. So it's urban planning, urban development. And so, um, a couple of the stories and articles um, that that still are vividly in my, are in my memory are of. Um, Macarthur Park, which I believe is in the Bay Area, if I'm not mistaken, um, and so they, you know, that that community was um, was supposed to be having a um, a train station implemented like in in the middle of the community. Um, the community fought back and said, "Hey, we we see this as a benefit. The way you want to implement it, though, is like it, it's going to knock everything out, right?" So they they were able to meet with, um, you know, like the the Transit uh, folks that were going to implement it, you know, city developers, all of that, and they came to a mutual agreement. And so, like, it is, it, you know, the train station did get put in, but there still is pieces of of the culture, and like, it's it's integrated in as opposed to as opposed to it being forced in. Um, and then another, um, another uh, study that I that I remember, I believe it was in Chicago. Um, there were supposed to be bike lanes that were going through a predominantly Puerto Rican community Um, and then just you know other that that was kind of going to be the start right of like different restaurants popping up um, you know condos all these different things so what what they uh, the like developers that were supposed to be putting in these bike lanes what screwed them over but ultimately like kind of helped everyone was they were going to put bike lanes through um, or next to a church and so they were going to knock out where um families and whatnot would park their cars as close to the church as possible. So that that community especially was like, no, this this is not okay. This is such a piece of our culture. Um, you can't just come in and, and think that's gonna fly. So what they were then able to do is they came to an agreement of, you know, we'll we'll let these bike lanes come in and go throughout the city and, and connect to other places as opposed to just like, you know, we're doing this for the sake of doing it. So they were really explicit about that. And then ultimately they were really explicit about making sure that everyone in the community especially young people had the knowledge of okay this is how you you know continue bike maintenance this is how you put on a helmet you know just all of these different pieces of okay if if, if you're going to use that amenity use it safely right and here are the tools and so there were I mean there are multiple uh, bike shops that popped up and are run by uh, Puerto Rican folks and you know just folks in the community as opposed to you know just like what typically happens right as you know people from out of town or you know suburbs whatever come in and they're like all right this is my show um it was fully integrated and so yeah there's ways that that can happen um hell there you know here in Portland um recently there was um there with a a spot that's called the Red House and it's in North Portland um in an in a neighborhood that's highly gentrified and you know kind of continues to be this house was um it's It's been within a family that's black and indigenous for multiple generations. I I think they've lived there for like 60 plus years at this point, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And the city was, they've gone back and forth with like um, different loans and all, and there's just been a a bunch of confusing aspects with it that has ultimately then led to, the city was preparing to evict the family. Um, And from what I understand, they had reached this agreement, like, well, agreement, but (laughs) the city was prepared to do that like two years ago. Um, and then you know but there there had been so much back and forth and then they were like fully preparing to carry it out in December of 2020 um, and they did actually begin the like physical process of removing the family like I mean they, they went in like you know destroyed things that were inside um, things of that like property and all of that belongings so the the community rallied back and was like no this this is wild because what you're going to do is you're going to flip this house and it's going to become condos it's going to become you know just a part of this uncultured area in the city. Um, so there, I mean, there was a, a huge rallying effort and um, folks within the community were actually able to raise enough money for the family to get the house back um, and you know, pay back or whatever um, was required. And so now it's, it's kind of in a, a litigation phase, but the community did fight back and was like, no, what we're gonna do is we're gonna like essentially occupy this space and not let the city evict this family. Um, And so from that, like, you know, there, I mean, there was, you know, there's community care stuff as far as if you need first aid, here it is. If you need food, here it is. Um, What, you know, whatever came up of just like whatever types of needs had to be met, they were, they were provided. And so there, there are ways for that to occur. Um, And maybe they come up more organically. Maybe they do come up in, you know, a more policy-based manner, depending on, you know, just the, the dynamics of, of a community or city. Um, so it's, it's going to be different every which way, but, um, it, it is possible I and mean, it's really hard, I feel. Um, but it, you know, it definitely is, you know, a possibility that, that then everyone can be on the same page too. Like, no, this can benefit everyone. It doesn't, you know, th- this doesn't have to pit everyone against each other. Um, uh, there are ways that, you know, folks can like work together and, you know, still have, um, communal respect for, you know, history and, um, all these different dynamics and actually then have things set up of okay here are here are amenities here are you know these resources that are allocated um, equitably
0: yeah i think that's a great point i think it i'm optimistic for once that we can improve with new technologies ways of bringing in community members that would otherwise have been excluded from individual meetings and town halls where now we can maybe reach people with text messages or through the internet and people can organize campaigns or like things on Facebook and get the attention of these projects in ways that they couldn't before and I do think that is one benefit that has come out of the interconnectivity of the past you know 20 years Um, and I do think the, the, the issue is it's really is it's a local flavor right like maybe there are certain areas in a town where it is an industrial area or there are lots of houses that aren't owned by anyone and are and those places sure you you put up some new community houses for new individuals to come in or you put in a community center or whatever it is but it really can't be from the top down in a way that other policies can you have to have that community engagement and i do think that helping to improve ways in which people can really understand these issues or at least be involved in these issues in a way that is more equitable could really make a big
2: difference yeah i mean i think that if you think about what makes a healthy, thriving community, it's not unmitigated capitalistic money making.
0: You ever been I mean, to a Baskin
2: Robbins? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just, um, I think it's, very, you know, I was watching a, a thing today that we're um, an early Facebook employee who's now a billionaire of, you know, another like hedge fund or some company. Uh, was just talking about, was critiquing his former company at Facebook. And it's the idea, I I think people are forced to see this problem writ large in social media companies that were designed to make money. And and they optimize making money and they're so damn good at making money that it's destroying our democracy. (laughs) And, you know, had our capital stormed as a result of it. And so they're like, it's like, huh, Maybe optimizing an organization with the sole purpose of only making money isn't the only kind of like a guiding principle worth, you know, it's a, if we're making communities, take San Diego, for instance. In the short term, if you want, you know, uh, developers to, if, if you want developers to make the most amount of money possible, it's like, great. Yeah. In the short term, sell off everything in sight and let them build big-ass condos. But the long-term is, like, people are going to want to come to San Diego less and less and less and less because the only reason will be the beaches rather than coming to see actual, like, like a culture formed, you know? And so, yeah, I just think it's really short-sighted. But it also takes so many um, contributors, I think, to... I mean, how many people did Tyler... List when he was talking about what it took to save this one house and in one community, right? Like it really takes designing places for these people to know and meet each other and care about each other, and then designing ways for that to influence the policy decisions, you know? So I think like a reimagining of how we design communities and language and spaces. And I mean, I think that's so crucial, you know? And it's part of a conversation I was uh, helping out with in terms of like trying to make San Diego and Tijuana like the world design capital. in in a few years, um, trying to just like reimagine how we think about the border as not just a militarized space in in the same way that, um, you know, we're talking about here. So.
0: It is it is interesting. I mean, this is a different discussion. We can, we can have you back on Tyler, but the, the fact that I, I'm always surprised when people are like, wait, Facebook did what? I'm like, for some reason, I, maybe it's just because they're great at advertising, right? They have all the data. So maybe that's it. But, when people hear that the military is involved with something, they're always like, well, the military is going to military. But then they're like, oh, this company's involved. Wait, they didn't help the poor? It's like, wait, that's, who thought, like they they didn't even claim that they were going to help the poor. It's always so interesting that they see these companies as somehow being different than what their mandate is or that they're institutionally designed to do. Um, Yeah, so this is just, I would just said, I would mention this earlier, very minor bit of uh, gentrification around where me and Eddie are from there's a small beach town where we're from and it's the the I would say the character comes from there's like an old bowling alley of, of an old like pool place and these places are like cheap you can go get a drink or you, you can have a sandwich or whatever and there used to be this big lot where everyone would park and go to the beach and whatever and they put this massive hotel like I don't think I could even afford to stay there like right on the front of Pismo Beach area and i was having an argument with people like they're like oh because we're just really looking up and i'm like no this is terrible like it's completely changed the vibe of the entire like beach area and it drives me crazy every time i see it it's because the reason people live where we do is because they don't want to live in la and now we're just santa monica so uh, that sort of thing it's hard to quantify right like i'm sure the housing prices and that bowling alley is probably worth more now but the chances of it being a bowling alley in 10 years are much lower now than it was
2: before that hotel got put there. Yeah. It's like, it's like looking at the stock market and judging like, oh, America's doing great. Look at the stock market, you know, in in a time where the stock market's booming and just disregarding all all the racial tension, all, you know, everything else. Um, I don't know. Tyler, jump in here.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that point that, that you're bringing up, I mean, that went into, you know, one of these articles from the New York times, right. And, I believe it was the every community deserves a third place like I mean because you know obviously we always contemplate okay where do, where do you live where do you work right and then maybe eventually if, if you have the time whatever then you can enjoy other things which is I, mean, I, I think that's just such bs because enter, whether it's entertainment or just like enjoying life in general that should be integrated into your life you know call me call me wild but i think that you know joy deserves to be shared by everyone so this isn't a
0: podcast for radicals tyler we didn't bring you on to bring down the system okay it's rational ish all right
1: bring it in all right if if you pay enough taxes yeah (laughs) um but yeah like that's what you're speaking to right is you know if if everything is thought of only as a commodity or only as you know what whatever you know yeah the capitalist system can the system itself can gain as opposed to other people being able to enjoy themselves or you know share experiences whatever then yeah that's that's where that's where all this carries out right and that's you know the i mean that's the biggest beast of gentrification and then super or hyper gentrification is you know not only not only are bars restaurants um anything like that not only are those going to be bought out then they're going to be replaced with just monstrosities to look at and then that don't stand for anything right so like you know even if that is in a smaller community I mean that that's I feel like that almost is has even more of, of an effect than i um, mean, in a, in a city because it's like you know if, if this was your one place to you know if that was the nickel arcade if that was yeah the movie theater which you know who knows when we're gonna be able to go back to theaters but um, you know if, if that was yeah a bowling alley if that what it, you know whatever it is um, a space where like anyone can go to, right? Not just not just adults or whatever. Uh, but if that's taken away from it from a community, especially a smaller community, then I feel like that's that's even more adverse, right? Of okay, cool. Yeah, you've you know you've got a hotel, so then the economy becomes based on tourism or, you know, folks visiting, whatever. And it's like, well if you're taking away things for people to do, <laughs> you know, to see whatever, then cool, now you're shorting yourself from what you were trying to pitch your economy based on. Um, along with, right, the cultural pieces that, that you know, and, and all that capital. So, yeah, it's it's a beast, man, it really is.
0: Absolutely. So I just wanted to say one more thing that I thought was interesting in a sad, tragic way, which a lot of this is, is the, the fact that most of the people that actually use the NIMBY laws, the laws about... Um, land management and the ability to kind of restrict future funding are actually the people that come in. They're actually like the big, the large companies, because they're the most um, capable, right? They're the ones with all the lawyers. They're the ones that have the experience dealing with these laws, which are very similar in a lot of municipalities. So what actually happens is the local community is doing fine. There's some investment They're of course, encouraging investment in local communities. They want public investment. But then as soon as people come in and build a big apartment, then they use, you know, imminent domain to knock out the two buildings next to them. And then you can't build anything besides a certain point, because they're the ones that have taken advantage of these laws. And so it really is this it gets back to this power dynamic between the community having to overcome daily life and inertia and the inability to provide collective action in these forums and these companies who have a huge advantage when things are based on participation, when That's their job and community are, you know, the community themselves are just trying to live their lives. And that's, it's a big issue. And hopefully technology, maybe we can brainstorm some ideas, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that certainly doesn't have a single solution, but hopefully we can just make it a little easier to get the the gears rolling on a couple of these things.
2: Well, maybe, maybe a way to round out this conversation would be like, uh, so Tyler bringing it back home for you. What's a way forward for, I city like Portland, in regard to this issue.
1: Man, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. It's it, it's tough because yeah, like, like you know, like we're all saying, I don't think there's any one way of addressing this or anything like that. Um, I I really do feel that um, reparations, in some capacity, I I think those are, you know, like. If, if especially all of this is built on, you know, who can make money, who can, you know, who deserves it, whatever, um, then it's like, well, um, then if, if you're going to try to move into, you know, or gentrify a neighborhood, um, an area, and you're very likely to displace people, um, especially if those are communities of color, then you know what? give them money like if if you're gonna you know if you're just gonna disregard them then you know jokes on you like however much you make for off of interest or whatever then hand that over to folks you know um and and then I I think you know on a more realistic uh term because you know this country has you know had the issue of reparations for centuries and won't come to it um then I think ultimately it's like then everyone has to acknowledge and learn the history of of these areas right and so i mean because you know for me personally like there is um there's a mall uh, for folks that are familiar with with portland it's called lloyd center in northeast portland um so close to you know these neighborhoods that like had i5 come through it all of that um and, and there is a there's a train that drops you right off at the mall which is great and all um you can't go there right now obviously right <laughs> or if you did then it's like cool you better be like quadruple masking um but like that that mall is i mean it's it's decimating itself from from the inside like I mean you know I think even just yesterday or the day before I was speaking with my family and um one I think the old navy that's in there which has been in for a long time like it's it's shutting down because they can't do anything with it so from what I understand that mall was implemented in about the 70s roughly and there had been housing there right so and it had been affordable um and now what's likely to happen is the movie theater that's associated with the mall that will eventually at some point become housing units but those are going to be really expensive right because it's in you know it's it's super easy to get to downtown portland from there um you know it's a safe area well you know like there's associated things with that but like it's it's a safe area <laughs> um, whatever that means um so yeah prices are going to skyrocket there and then, you know, for for communities that have been there for generations, whatever, they're probably not going to be able to reap any of those benefits whatsoever, right? So it, it's just like it's like a almost like a long like full circle con. <laughs> so I, I think just you know the way to go about that is to ensure that you know developers especially and then you know just members of the community that um, might ultimately be like oh yeah we're pushing for this whatever it's like well you you got to learn the history of like where this came from right. Um, and you know, I I don't then think that that might change minds of you know enough people. Um, hopefully it does, um, but I, I think it's it's such an important piece because that's that's what's gotten us into these situations of, you know, people being okay with this happening, people being okay with you know like hundreds of police officers in you know predominantly black communities. Um, you know, all all of these are symptoms of one of multiple things, and the crux of that is false information (laughs) and it's like so if you're given correct information and and correct history and all that then like then from there you might be able to like kind of piece together okay yeah this would be this would be beneficial to you know to be on like a community board or you know um you know donate more money to a nonprofit so they're able to you know kind of um you know spread their wings a little bit more not be you know like the end all be all but be a higher contributing factor than you know, the, yeah, the hotel abomination or whatever. So um, I I think there there are ways, right. But ultimately it's, you know, it's about, yeah, learning history. And then, I mean, just reallocation of funds um, into more community-based spaces Um, and then empowering those, you know, individuals, um, you know, businesses, whatever it might be to like actually be voices and champions within the community and not you know, some developer, <laughs> you know, these, these systemic components.
2: Yeah, no, that makes a little sense. And maybe kind of a connection to our last podcast that me and Morgan were just kind of like bemoaning the state of, I don't know, uh, politics in this country and like, uh, how difficult activism can be in the era of Mitch McConnell. Maybe like the answer to that is just focusing on like your your local school boards and your community meetings Showing up and talking about stuff that, where you know, you know, where where these are community issues and they're not going to be impacted by any executive action, at you know, the highest levels of of government, whether that's a you know someone who's a Republican or or a liberal, so that you know these are yeah just creating more buy-in and more like activism at the at the, at the very kind of just grassroots community level, I you mean, know, that's a way forward, yeah. I mean, obviously, people like you, Tyler, have been doing this for a long time. But I mean, I guess I'm speaking to myself. No,
1: yeah. But I I mean, I think, yeah, even, yeah, just like local politics, right, is so essential. And I mean, you know, because we, I feel like, especially in the U.S., we do get caught up in the, you know, kind of like Senate races, you know, presidential elections, all of those components. It's the stuff at the local level that's going to have the most impact. So yeah, if you are able to um, and that's a piece of um, accessibility, right, because more often than not, like a school board meeting or a city hall meeting, um, you know, Morgan, you, meant, you mentioned that meeting, right, where it was, you know, God, it's 75 and it's 3 p.m. Um, like, more often than not, those meetings are, I, I feel like at least, um, purposefully set up so that, you know, folks from the, like, more, you know, more common folks aren't able to show up, Um so with that, it's like, okay, if, if we can find someone like within a group or something like that, um, that's able to represent, you know, this section, then let's go to that or like, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, the, especially in Portland, that's over the summer, that's where a lot of momentum grew is from the community being like, no, let's let's gather together. Let's show up at these city hall meetings. Like, I um, mean, retroactively, I mean, it's, especially over the summer, it was, it was a lot about like police budget and whatnot. So things had already kind of been set in place, um, but folks were able to attend and at least get more information and you know and more buy in. And now it's like, okay, like let's let's keep this up, let's keep the momentum going, um, and and not lose sight of you know all, all these other goals and whatnot. But yeah, like the, yeah, the, the game of local politics is, I mean, it's essential to um, you know to find a way to to buy in, and it's really difficult, but
2: however you can
1: um i I would strongly recommend that that being a piece
2: and it it really is buying in like that is your money at work right so morgan
0: yeah i mean i think it's a great place to end it i think the call to be more involved even if it's just you know reading a local paper or something just knowing what's going on in your local community is something that it's it's not I think we forget that this wasn't always this way. The nationalization of the news in the United States is actually a pretty recent phenomenon and comes with the internet and, and the takeover of local cable news by a couple of large conglomerates. Um, but a lot of studies have shown that people have become more attuned to these national elections. Um, nowadays, you pretty much vote for the president of the same party that you voted for. It didn't used to be that way. Your local politician didn't really matter what party they were from. You voted for them based on you know, good works in the community. And that has become disconnected in a lot of places. So I think it's a great place to end. It is just, you know, look up who your local counselor is. If you can name them, then you get a gold star from rationalish. If not, then uh, don't tell us, look it up and we'll still give you a gold star later on. So you got that going for you. Well, Tyler, this has been great. So glad to have you. You're going to have to come on again. You're always full of wisdom and uh, we've got lots And we didn't even bring up basketball once I thought about it. I was like, I was going to talk about local communities and stadiums. I was going to bring, but I was like, all right, I'm going to hold off. We can yeah, hold it for another yeah. pod.
1: Cause I mean ultim- that, that probably in Portland would be the end all be all like if we get a statue mm-hmm. of Damian Lillard hitting all of his game winners and losing uh, you know, series winners, then like that's two right there.
2: <laughs>
0: I think abolish the stadium, have them play in the parks around the city, revitalization Dame tour, downtown Dame. <laughs>
2: you, you can see that statue from like a mile away by those highlighter, hi- highlighter yellow <laughs> <laughs> shoes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to go.
0: <laughs> all right, folks, until next time. Thank you, Rational Listeners.
2: Peace out.